Today's first reading comes from John chapter 11, verse 32 to 37. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And from Mark 15, 34 to 38. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of these standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In Revelation 21, Verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the, uh, the second thing was to say we'll have this uh, 15 minutes to discuss and reflect. We'll do it under that fire hose there at about 5 to 12. I hope that was clear second time around. I just want to say thank you very much to Claire. I don't know where Claire's gone, but thank you very much indeed for uh, what you just said, for, for Lee, for the interview, and then for Audra and uh, Mike and Grace for that wonderful uh, item to reflect on, on the hard things that Claire said. We certainly need God's help as we come to this passage, and so let's pray and ask him for it. Father, we stand on holy ground, and we pray for your help. Each of us sit before you with different experiences, either current or past, of suffering, each of us with different friends and relations in different states of suffering. And so we pray, speak to each one of us, comfort us, do not overburden us, but give us a sense of the Lord Jesus, your Son, and all that he is for us. In his name we pray. Amen. As I said earlier, we begin this Tough Questions series today, and in part what we're trying to do is um, help each other think, how can we love our friends, how can we love our unbelieving family members with faithful answers to common questions or objections uh, that arise to Christianity? But I'm aware as we come to this question in particular, how can a good God allow suffering that for some it is very raw indeed? For many in this room today, it is not an academic question. And as I look out, 
I know there are a number of people in the midst of severe trials. I'm sure there are a number I don't know of who are in the midst of that. And to be honest, addressing this question is maybe not what you need this morning. For some of you, I'd rather put my arm around you and listen to your story and weep with you and pray for you. I pray that God will, through this passage, through these passages, bring his comfort to you, his grace to you to keep going. But I'm aware that in the midst of suffering, we often don't need to wrestle with this question, how can God allow it? I'm also aware that I've got 20 minutes to do what people have written whole books on. I've got three sheets of A4 paper. And uh, necessarily anything I say is limited and and, uh, insufficient. Uh, And so if I say something that's insensitive or, or not clear, please forgive me. Feel free to come to me afterwards and and chat. Feel free to come to the the thing under the fire hose. But as we think about this question, as we want to talk about this question with others, uh, I think there are three areas we need to have in mind, and we'll look at three areas this morning. The first is this. Tears are the right response to this world of suffering. Tears are the right response to this world of suffering. The wonderful promise of the gospel is there will be a day when every tear is wiped away, when pain and grief and suffering will be ended. But until that time, our lives will be marked by pain, by sadness, by suffering. And tears are the right response to that. If this morning you are asking this question, how can a good God possibly allow suffering? I want to say to you, there is something very right indeed about asking it. If a friend asks you that question, there is a sense that they have seen the world in a very deep and profound way, and the response is and should be sadness. Anger is right, and we see the world as it's not meant to be. Notice it's Jesus' response. Just If you look at the words from John's Gospel, we've got a short section of a rather long account here, but in essence, uh, what has happened is this man, Lazarus, has died. And Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He's Mary, who's mentioned in the reading's sister. And uh, if you don't know this encounter, can I encourage you to, to have a look at it? It's a remarkable encounter with Jesus. But I want you to see Jesus' response to his friend's death. In verse 34, we see Jesus sees Mary and others weeping, and he asks them to take him to Lazarus's grave. And then we read verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus sees the suffering of this world and he weeps. And friends, it's all the more striking because in just a few moments, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. In literally a few minutes, Lazarus is stood before Jesus, stood before his sisters, perfectly alive and well. But Jesus doesn't say, look guys, chin up, it'll all be all right in a minute. No, he weeps. And the more, and more than weep, look at verse 33, we see he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Literally, it says he is angry. He is angry at death, angry at the way the world is not the way it should be. And friends, when we come face to face with suffering, we need to recognize its awfulness. We mustn't be the kind of Christians who give the impression that we can just keep calm and think of the resurrection and carry on glibly say, just think about heaven. When we do that, we are out of kilter with Jesus. 
Because although suffering will end, although there is massive hope, that doesn't invalidate the reality of suffering. It is awful, and tears are the right response. And just notice, the Bible is real about suffering. It engages with suffering. There are many different ways, aren't there? Many different tones of voice, if I can put it like that, to ask this question, how can God allow suffering? It can come from the depth of a painful experience, but it can also come almost like a, a kind of trump card to say that God can't exist, as if suffering invalidates the notion that there could be a good God. And yet the Bible is totally realistic about suffering, and yet at the same time insists that there is a God who is good. And the Bible would say, rather than disproving God, the suffering in this world shows us it is not as it's meant to be. And we need to spend a minute thinking, why does the Bible say the world is like this? And the really odd thing, I think, is the more we see what the world was supposed to be like, the more we see how messed it up, how messed up it is, the more we will weep. If we really understand how broken this world is, we will shed more tears. Because the Bible says when God made this world, it was fantastic. It was a place that was perfect. It was paradise. I don't know if you ever have a, a kind of dream of a place that is paradise. Maybe there's some of you daydream about when life is hard. Well, the Bible would say the world as it was created is that dream on steroids. It was wonderful. And God put people into that wonderful world. He put the first humans there with tremendous dignity, made like we are, in the image of God. And part of that dignity is the ability to make real choices, to do real things. And their role was to protect paradise, to look after creation. And yet, tragically, the first humans used their dignity and their power not to protect, protect paradise, but rather to use it for their own selfish ends. And as that happened, just as God warned, the result was paradise was lost. A curse came on paradise. Death and frustration entered it, and this virus of decay affects every element of the world. Today, all around us, we see the consequences of the first human's disobedience. Paul, in the book of Romans, reminds us creation is groaning, and we see it every day, don't we? People in the prime of their life dying, people suffering in agonizing pain, defects entering the world, people being born blind or without limbs, rain not falling and so droughts coming and crops failing and people starving. But it's not just natural suffering, is it? In a sense, the word natural suffering is a, a terrible word because there's nothing natural about suffering at all. All suffering is unnatural. It's an unwanted intruder into God's world but it's not just suffering that comes from nature, but actually people, we, continue, don't we, to use our God-given glorious power to make real choices and to do real things, not just for good, but to inflict suffering on one another. And the reality is each one of us here has suffered, but we've also caused pain and suffering to others. And there's a sense when we see this suffering, we should weep. So often we take suffering to God, don't we? And we say, God, what have you done? How can you allow this to be? 
And the Bible would take it back to us and say, no, what have you done? And we should weep because each one of us has had a hand in ruining paradise. We should weep. But I just want to be clear, and this is really important because people often misunderstand this. If we're suffering, it's not because of our own individual sin. It's not as if we can say, well, I'm suffering in this way and and therefore I must have done something terrible. Jesus says rarely is there that kind of direct link. In Jesus' time, there was a terrible tragedy. A, A tower in Jerusalem fell down and 18 people were killed. And people wondered, why did that happen? And you can imagine, just like today when tragedies happen, some crank comes up and says it's because those people were particularly bad sinners. God was punishing them. You always have that, don't you? Coronavirus, that was some particular person's fault. And Jesus says to his disciples, those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than others who lived in Jerusalem? Were they more deserving? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. The Bible is clear. Suffering is the result of humans turning away from God, but it does not follow. If you are suffering today, it's because of a particular sin. If somebody comes to us with suffering, it does not follow. It is because of some particular sin. In a sense, it reminds us just how messed up the world is because so often it is good people who seem to suffer most. Sometimes those who are particularly wicked seem to get away with a really easy life. The world is messed up. And the right response to this world of tears is suffering. Is not suffering, is tears. But the second thing we need to think about is who God is. And really, I think this gets to the heart of this issue. But I want to say this is very confronting. And if you're in the midst of a deep uh, period of suffering, this, in a sense, I don't think is what you need to hear today. But we do need to think who God is. And the second thing to see is God knows our tears and doesn't make mistakes. God knows our tears and doesn't make mistakes. In Psalm 56 a psalm of suffering. Uh, The psalmist says, you have counted my tossings. You put my my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And it's a beautiful image, isn't it, of God kind of capturing people's tears. I think we'd probably more think of him wiping away the tears. But the point is, in the moment when God's people suffer, he is there with them. He comforts them. That moment is, is known and precious to him. But he's not caught unaware. And we see that in our episode with Lazarus. Mary says to Jesus, doesn't she, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Or in verse 37, some of the Jews say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And the answer is surely yes. If Jesus was there, he could have stopped it happening. And we wonder how could God allow his friend to die? How could Jesus allow his friend to die? But the Bible assures us God is loving and does not make mistakes. And friends, there is a deep mystery here. Why would a good and loving God with power to stop suffering allow it to happen? But do we see, it's only as we have this kind of God, this kind of good and powerful God, that this question has any rub. Just try a thought experiment with me for a moment. If God wasn't good, 
if he's a kind of capricious, grumpy, angry old man in the sky, we'd still have terrible suffering, wouldn't we? And suffering would still be terrible, but we couldn't lay any claim at God's door because he'd say, well, I'm, I'm a grumpy, angry old man. I'll do as I please, just being consistent. Or if God was not totally in control, we might say, well, he's, he's a very good God, and he's doing his best, but frankly, he's a little bit incompetent, and sometimes he drops a ball, and things down here go terribly wrong, but don't be angry with him. It's not his fault. He's trying. What an awful picture of God that would be. And of course, if we say that God doesn't exist at all, if we say this world is just a product of kind of natural forces, that death and pain and getting one over on each other is just part of the way the world is, well then, how can we be angry at God? It's just the way things are. But you see, this is a problem precisely because the Bible speaks of a God who is good and who is in control. And that leads us to question what is going on? That is the kind of God we need, isn't it? That's the kind of God this world longs for, a God who is wonderfully loving and good, a, a God who is wonderfully in control. But it does make us wonder, what the heck is going on? From our perspective, we, want, we cannot fathom how God can allow it to be like this. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says these, which are, these words, which I think are very wise. He says, if you have a God who is infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. Let me just say that again. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. And I have to say, I wrestle with that. I personally don't think I've suffered very much, certainly not compared to some of you in this room, but I have sat next to people who have suffered much, and I have to say, I wonder how can a good God allow this to happen? And it's easy to begin to think, if I were God, I would not do it like this. But when I say that, I begin to say, God, you made a mistake. I begin to say, God, I know better than you. And yet I see from a tiny, limited perspective. When little James Ballinger, who cannot manage his own life fully, says to an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely loving God, I'd have done it better, there's something desperately wrong, isn't there? And what is inconceivable to finite me, I have to concede, may be conceivable. There may be a reason for an infinite God. That God has a plan. The Bible says he's restoring the world. He's bringing people to know him. He's wiping away. He's restoring this creation in a way that will one day wipe away pain and suffering. But at any given moment, we do not know what God is doing. Friends, I just want to dwell on this a minute. This is so important, isn't it? We do not know in any moment of suffering exactly what God is doing. And we inflict pain on ourselves. We inflict pain on others when we pretend that we do. We live in a, in a world where we love to know why, don't we? I was chatting to Steve Jukes the other day, and he was telling me that there's a kind of management philosophy that encourages managers to help people working see why 
Because if people know why, they can kind of put up almost with anything. They'll keep going. They've, they've got a purpose. And we want to know why, don't we? And at the same time, we live in an age that's desperate to solve things. And so often people with good intentions or kind of just from unthinking knee-jerk reaction can try and solve people's problems, tr- solve people's suffering by giving them a why. Oh, maybe God is doing this. Maybe God wants you to learn this. And the reality is we don't know why. And when we say that, we often compound people's suffering. Now, that is not to say that the Bible doesn't give some general reasons why God may allow suffering, that he sometimes uses it to make us know him more, that he uses it to uh, cause us to be a blessing to other and others. And Claire spoke of some of those things, didn't she? But in any particular act of suffering, we don't know for sure what God is doing, and that is perplexing. And we need to cling to and trust that God is good. He knows our tears, and he doesn't make mistakes. I don't know if you're into doing jigsaws. I find people who do jigsaws very perplexing. I could never do a jigsaw, actually. I never quite had the patience to complete a jigsaw. But uh, if you're good at doing jigsaws, just this will be easy to imagine. Imagine you're doing one of those really complicated jigsaws with um, there's a blue sky and there's a blue sea and most of the pieces are blue. And you, um, you pull out a piece from the box and it, frankly, it doesn't make any sense. It's just a jumble of blue, different shades of blue and you can't see where it goes or, or, or how it connects to the other pieces. And to understand, you need to see the, the box. And when you look at the box, you can see where it fits and you can see it makes up a wonderful picture. But pulling out one piece, you've no idea. And life comes to us piece by piece. And we look at it, and it's an absolute jumble. And we don't know how it connects, and we can't see. And sometimes we get a glimpse of the box, but often we don't. But the fact that we don't know doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan, that he is painting a wonderful picture. But we are not God. And so rather than tell people what God or what we think God is doing, rather than try and persuade ourselves we've got some kind of why, we need to trust that God is good, that he knows our tears, he doesn't make mistakes, and that is very hard. Sometimes that is impossible. We do it through tears, but we need to trust him. And the way we can trust him, I think, is our third thing to see this morning. We need to look at Jesus. We need to look at Jesus, the one who wept, to bring an end to weeping. We need to look at Jesus, the one who wept to bring an end to weeping. If you're suffering this morning, this is what I want you to go away with. Look at Jesus. If you have a chance to talk to someone in the midst of suffering, pray you have an opportunity to point them to Jesus. Our reading from Mark was an account of Jesus on the cross, wasn't it? And it reminds us that Jesus didn't just weep at the pain of others. He himself wept and cried out in pain. Look at verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And friends, this reminds us that God doesn't just stand aloof from pain and suffering. He entered into this world. He became a a finite human being and lived in this world of suffering. Jesus was known as the man of sorrows, wasn't he? And ultimately, he ended his life in agony. And when we suffer... We may think no one knows, but God does know. Claire spoke a little of that, didn't she? And God promises in our suffering, he is with us. We sang of that in Psalm 23. 
But the cross also shows us how God can take something utterly wicked, something that is truly evil, and without in any way minimizing the evil nature of it, use it to work out his good plan. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, it's made very clear that the crucifixion was a wicked act done by evil people solely intent on evil, and yet it was also, to use the words of Acts 2, part of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And again, friends, there is much mystery here. But the Bible insists that the act was genuinely wicked. There was nothing good in it. It was horrible, abhorrent. And yet somehow, mysteriously, God planned it and allowed it in such a way to bring his good purpose. And as Jesus cried on the cross in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries in more than just the pain of death. He cries undergoing God's holy wrath. The curse that came on this earth was born by Jesus, that he might undo the curse. Jesus suffered death, that he might end death. Just as the first sin destroyed everything, so this act at the cross begins the restoration and reconciliation of everything. Jesus wept that weeping might end, and we see that at its completion. Our third reading from Revelation 21 gives us, doesn't it, a picture of the end time. And the world has been judged. All that is wrong and evil is destroyed. And we see the old broken creation, this groaning world renewed. And a city comes down. And God himself will be there. Paradise will be regained. The paradise this world was designed to be. And what do we see? God himself, wiping the tears from our eyes. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. The one who wept will wipe out weeping. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The curse is gone. The groans of creation are finished. And the groans of those who've trusted in Christ too are gone, because no longer will we suffer. No longer will we inflict suffering on others. Rather, we will love and be loved as we were created to be. The Apostle Paul, a man who suffered much, a man who caused much suffering, says to encourage people to keep trusting God in the midst of deep trials, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he doesn't say that to downplay or minimize our suffering now. He says they're real and serious but they are as nothing compared to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. So friends, in our suffering, the Bible invites us to look at the cross and in suffering to trust God. Because as we look at the cross, we see a God of love, a God whose love is so great that he entered this broken world to fix it. The cross shows us a God who is in control who somehow mysteriously uses even the most abhorrent evil, the death of his son, to bring about good. A good that is extended even to those who killed him. So rather than suffering being something that drives us from God, the Bible would urge us that suffering drive us to God because he is the one who suffered to end suffering, who wept to end weeping. Well, friends, as we finish, this is a huge topic, 
Some will have a chance to discuss it in their small groups. We can chat over there in a few minutes. If you want to chat to me, come and grab me. I'm sorry what I've said is brief and, and inadequate. But as we finish, let me urge you to look and help others to look at Jesus, the one who wept at suffering, the one who wept in suffering, and at Jesus, the one who wept to end suffering. Let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, this is a topic that is beyond our comprehension in many ways. But we thank you that you knew suffering, you tasted pain and death, that you might ultimately end it. And Father, we thank you that Jesus knows our suffering, that he is with us in our suffering. And so, Father, we pray as we look at this world and we groan and we ask why and how, we pray that though we may not have an answer, though often we cannot have an answer now, you would help us to trust that you are good and you are in control. Give us eyes and faith to see that. For Jesus' sake, amen.